Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. Just a couple announcements before we get started. First, join us this Thursday, October 26th for a Q&A in the Slack group with today's guest. You can request an invite under the community tab at mixed-methods.org. As you'll hear, Michael is one of the most experienced UX researchers around. So come to the Slack group, ask him your questions, and make a new connection. Also, check out Mixed Methods on Medium. You'll find weekly or bi-weekly posts about the latest in the field, thought leadership pieces, and more. Today's episode is sponsored by UserZoom, a UX research tool that combines qualitative and quantitative tools with unparalleled customer support. It's basically like getting a full toolbox plus a team of researchers to help you use them. Learn more at userzoom.com. This episode is also sponsored by dScout, a remote research platform that is turning fieldwork on its head by allowing researchers to conduct experience sampling with real people right on their smartphones. Visit dscout.com to see how easy it is to start your own study. Here's this week's episode. Michael Margolis is undoubtedly a pioneer in the field of UX research. After studying anthropology at Stanford University, Michael began applying his social science degree in an unusual way for the early 1990s, redesigning products with a customer-centric view. He's worked at The Learning Company, EA, Walmart.com, and Google. In 2010, he was asked to join GV's design studio as the first, and check me if I'm wrong here, only UX researcher working for a VC firm. Michael is known in the industry for his exceptional interviewing skills. This is Ariel Sionflone, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Building Rapport, How the Small Stuff Adds Up. So would you mind starting with just, you know, a little bit of an explanation of how you got into this field of work? Sure. So um, I started doing this work um, UX work in general, probably, well, it's around 1990. So I graduated with a degree in anthropology um, and first um, got involved in some companies that were doing educational software. And so at a very early stage was helping um, develop the documentation and the, the user's guides and things like that to help explain how to use products to parents and kids and teachers. And when you're developing that kind of documentation, what you see is when things are difficult to explain, um, you start to see some of the issues are actually with the design. And so that was kind of where it started for me was sort of my introduction to design and to understanding kind of what worked or didn't work. And then um, that was when I was working at the learning company it was really my first exposure to usability testing. They did a lot of kid testing there. Yeah. I, so, I, I was go just gonna, I was going to say I love that call out because, you know, obviously uh, user experience research can get a little bit more expensive, but it's like the more you can either put money there or you can put money into your customer service or your consulting org or these different things to solve the problems later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that was um, my first introduction to it and was, you know, kind of opened my eyes to it. And it was very exciting to see the kind of um, changes and, and, and things you could learn through that. And especially when you see people who are expert at it doing it with kids, um, that's an additional sort of like level of difficulty. Um, to do it with kids. So that was pretty interesting um, to learn and see how they were doing that. And so then over time, um, as I went from the learning company to electronic arts and to 
um, AOL and eventually to a, a product design consulting firm called GBO, I kind of moved more and more upstream in the process of where I was, you know, doing the documentation um, to doing being a producer, being more involved and responsible for kind of shipping and delivering and creating that whole product, more like a product manager kind of person as a producer mm-hmm. and doing more research on my own um, as much as I could. But then when I got to GVO and was working with people who were really expert researchers and there what we did was, was consulting with primarily large brands, helping them figure out kind of what is our next product to build? Um, you know, how do we, um, you know, you can imagine a company like Alcoa, how do we use more of, you know, the specific kind of aluminum, you know, can you come up with concepts for that? Or how mm-hmm. do we identify new needs for products for DuPont, these kinds of things. So it was very deep customer research, big consulting projects, lots of people working on things for a long time. And we started to work more and more on um, interactive products. So this is in the late 90s. Um, so a small team of us started to develop that aspect of the business and doing more work with companies like Palm. We worked, did a lot of work with Ericsson trying to figure out, you know, what is this camera phone thing? You know, we have these different technologies. How does this work? How do people take a picture with a camera? What do they do with it? Um, so more and more of that. So I got to work with really excellent people and learn from them um, how to do kind of this very, very intense, in-depth kind of ethnographic style research. Um, and then um, when I went from there to walmart.com, uh, where I was leading research and we were kind of, you know, it was early on in e-commerce, the, the challenge there was to figure out, well, how do I take these techniques, this kind of deep customer research, very product-focused customer research, and accelerate it? Mm-hmm. So obviously starting to work at walmart.com, we didn't have, I didn't have weeks and weeks and weeks to work on things. I didn't have giant budgets any longer and I didn't have a large team to work with the kind of, the kinds of projects that we used to do when I was doing the product consulting. Yeah. So I had to figure out how do I optimize this? How do I adapt the things that I'm doing and do them much, much faster and much leaner? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you, you've had so many careers in your one career, right? (laughs) You've been doing the same thing all along, but you know, what you just said is almost four different skill sets. Yeah. And I've, in some ways what I've done is I've ridden the wave of various technology shifts kind Mm -hmm. of, right? So when I was doing things at the learning company, these were, you know, little teeny floppy disks that, you know, you would stick into your IBM and then we were doing CD-ROMs. It was the big thing (laughs) at at Electronic Arts. And then Walmart.com obviously was, um, you know, the web, the World Wide Web, um, yeah, and then going from there to Google, obviously, you know, continuing to ride that shift. Yeah, are there are there any trends in the field that have surprised you? You know, over since the '90s when you kind of got into this, are there any trends in just user experience research that you know have kind of stuck out to you? Um, I think part of it is the awareness of it and the prevalence of it has just increased. Um, it used to be that there was this frequent, or I don't know, frequent, there used to be a regular cycle that every some number of months, there would be an article about anthropologists in business, and look at that, and they're going and they're studying people, and they're going to people's homes, like, can you believe this <laughs> crazy, wacky thing? Um, and you don't see that so much anymore, because now I think it's it's pretty common, right? Like, of course you're studying customers, and not everybody's doing it to the same extent or the same way, but it's a, it's a common idea. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the big shifts is just more people are doing it and they're doing it for more things. So that's good. Um, the other thing that has changed is that the the variety of tools that exist and, and services that exist to support it um, have increased. So an example of that is um, 
let's say if you need to recruit participants for a study that you're doing, mm-hmm. um, depending on where you are, you might be at a company that has a staff of people who is doing that and building databases and managing that. But if you're trying to do this in a lean way, uh, it's a little trickier. So when I was at Walmart.com, I had, you know, I had to do that all myself. And so you're maybe doing it with Craigslist and kind of managing and doing all those things, um, very carefully selecting people and screening them. But now I can do things, you know, there are all these online services where I can go to something like respondent.io and work with them. And depending on what I'm looking for, they can very quickly help me identify um, and enlist the, you know, the, the exact target that I want very quickly, you know, mm-hmm. in a matter of a few days. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I actually just got on Respondent this week to try it out for a project and it, it's really incredible. Yeah. And so they've been great and they've been a great partner with me. So we've I've given them, as you can imagine, plenty of feedback and they're growing and changing and improving it all the time. So that's been a, a really good tool for me. Yeah. But some of the, in terms of the other trends of the techniques, I mean, I, I think a lot of the things that I have learned to do long ago, you know, how to do an interview, I'm not sure that changes that much. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the, the, the tools or maybe the, the software things you might use to record it or to, you know, um, be able to do more things remotely have improved. But at the core, the interview skills, I think, are not that different. Mm-hmm. Or I don't identify, I don't see what the changes are, maybe. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. User Zoom is a UX research platform that combines qualitative and quantitative tools with unparalleled customer support. It's basically like getting a full toolbox plus a team of researchers to help you use them. They can help design, conduct, and synthesize your study, or you can use the tools they provide to do it yourself. Learn more at userzoom.com. Yeah. Are there any... It's amazing having it's it's amazing being able to have a conversation with someone like you who has this perspective, right? That I don't have of I mean what basically twenty seven years uh, in this field. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious. I don't know if you, that's supposed to make me feel good or feel bad. I'm a little definitely <laughs> good. <laughs> um, but I'm uh, yeah. I would I would uh, really like to hear if you have any you know, perspective on what you'd like to see in the next five to 10 years from this community or like any of the changes that, you know, you, you kind of hope this community will mature into? Um, some of the things, you know, I, I, so in my role at GV, so I support roughly 300 startups who are in our portfolio. So companies that we've invested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what I do is teaching and training and mentoring product managers or um, often junior researchers, or sometimes some people have, you know, full on professional experienced researchers, but I spend a lot of time working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of the things that I'm training and teaching is uh, interview skills and how to, how to do that well. And so it's, those are things that I'd like to continue seeing people develop and do well. There's still a lot of cases where people don't do it great. It just takes a ton of practice mm-hmm. uh, and working with people who are good to see that, see the model of how to do it. Um, so something I'd like to see is just more, uh, see more people doing it better. You know, it's the same as when you see people doing surveys, you see a lot of wacky stuff that people report. <laughs> yeah. So it's a similar kind of thing to me. You know, people will report things like, well, how did you do that? Uh, who did you recruit? Why did you, why did you design it that way? And, you know, just more, um, uh, more people who think more analytically and more carefully about how they're designing 
be exercised to answer the key questions that they need to answer. And sometimes I think that that's, um, that could be done more thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's definitely something that's been on my mind is kind of the rigor around different methods that we use in the field. And, you know, standardizing some of those things or creating places where people can easily access those standards, because I think they're definitely there, especially when you're talking about surveys, but sometimes it's not as accessible uh, or, you know, easy to find for people who are newer in the field, or maybe it isn't their primary job to write surveys or something. Uh, So yeah, I think that's, that's a great call out. You know, and you're also, you're talking about interviews and I would say you're someone who's known for being really talented in interviews. And I think there's, you know, definitely some hard skills or, um, you know, standard practices like don't lead the witness or things like that. Mm -hmm. But I would really like, you know, love to have you maybe speak a little bit to some of the soft skills that you've developed over your career that you feel like are really important because I think, you know, especially in this field, sometimes it's those soft skills paired with that rigor that really differentiate a good researcher from a great researcher. Um, well, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, some of the soft skills, it's a, it's a range of um, thinking about how you're asking questions, what how you're phrasing questions um, and the body language and um how you're relating to and making the person you're interviewing feel. So a lot of that, maybe I would boil down or focus on, on the idea of building rapport with mm-hmm. the person that you're talking to. And so what I mean by that is, is how, how comfortable are you making this person, whomever you're interviewing, how comfortable are you making them to feel comfortable sharing very candid stories with you, possibly very personal stories, or maybe things that don't necessarily make them look so good, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on what you're talking about, even if it's personal or professional. Um, And having that trusting, candid, open kind of conversation. And how quickly can you get to uh, that relationship, right? Because often I'm doing things, again, I'm, I'm working in a pretty scrappy way and trying to move very quickly. So let's say I have half an hour or an hour of time with somebody. Um, who doesn't know me, and it's often, and for me, it's often in a domain that I'm not familiar with because I'm supporting so many different companies across agriculture and security and, um, you know, a lot of consumer stuff, you know, you name it. Yeah. Um, And so I'm walking into a context where I don't know very much and they don't quite know what I want from them and like what the rules of the road are, like, you know, what's this engagement going to be? And so I have to very quickly... um, sort that out, make them comfortable and make them willing to talk to me and share with me. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, just in terms of like a mental model or the way you're, you know, you're thinking when you go into a situation, you know, what is your mental model or your head, your headspace look like? Are you just mm-hmm. organically like so good at it now because you've been doing it for all these years that you walk in and it's supernatural or, you know, is there some kind of unique uh, place that you go to? Um, I don't know if it's if it's unique, but the 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 model that I have in my head, there are a couple things that I that I think about. So people can study um, all these aspects, for example, of body language and and nonverbal um, communication and micro expressions, and you know, is the person lying? And there are all these kinds of things that you can study. And I'm not I'm not smart enough to like keep track of all that stuff. So <laughs> I, I just keep these like for me sort of simple frameworks in my head that help me 
help me address that or kind of clump those things together. So one of the big ones is I think about, and this is before I go into a, a session or into some kind of setting where I'm, I'm trying to learn from somebody, is kind of who's the host and who's the guest. So if I'm bringing customers or bringing people into my office here at Google where I sit, um, then I'm kind of in this host mode. And so what that means for me is then I have to think about, okay, I'm, I have to be kind of directing what's going on because they don't know. And I'm going to help them by being the one who's kind of leading the, running the show a little bit. I want to seem very attentive and very welcoming and, and showing that they're, that I'm super interested in what they're doing. You know, it's like, imagine somebody coming to a dinner party at your house. It's kind of, that's the model I have in my head. I want to be a gracious host and make them feel as comfortable and, and interesting as possible, put mm -hmm. them at ease. But if I'm in an, another setting where I'm going into somebody's office, I'm going to go interview some oncologists at their practice, or I'm going to somebody's home, then I'm the guest. And so in that case, I have to, I have to kind of mentally approach it differently Right. So I want to make sure that I'm a good guest and I'm I show up on time and I'm super flexible because, you know, you're in their context and like anything goes. You're at their office and they get calls or the dog is barking, like all these things that happen. And you just have to go with the flow in a very different kind of way and be very appreciative about um, their time and their, you know, they'll offer you drinks. And some of these sound very mundane, but it's kind of a it's this mindset that you're in as a good guest versus a good host. Mm -hmm. um, and and that depends on kind of whose turf you're on. Um, and, and so that helps me. Um, the other thing that I do is um, I, I think about some of this stuff. When I'm doing interviews, I, I kind of get into a, it's my interviewing role or my character that I play. <laughs> um, and if I go in, if I go do these interviews in my normal day-to-day attitude and personality, which is maybe like this grumpy, cynical, skeptical guy, like that doesn't, that's not so welcome. And it doesn't like get me great results. So I have to kind of take a deep breath and smile and then get into character, which is part of it is kind of what's the host guest situation. Um, part of it is making sure that I have this appropriate attitude in my head about, oh, I'm super curious. And um, I just want to know as much as I can, I'm very interested in this which sounds, uh, hopefully doesn't sound too artificial. I mean, it's, it becomes a sort of natural thing. And it's just kind of like that stop, take a deep breath and do it and go in. Mm -hmm. And then once I'm in the interviews, there's this other thing that I think about, which is um, status of, of my status and the participant status and maybe the prototype, quite honestly, of what we're looking at. And what I mean by status is, is something that I learned um, many years ago when I was in San Francisco and I took a few improv classes. And I don't mean to suggest that I'm an expert performer in improv, so, but it was just kind of my uh, an early exposure to it. And the things that I took away from it that were really useful was one of them was this idea of status, mm -hmm. which is um, kind of the pecking order, the hierarchy um, in a relationship. And it's something as social animals, we're actually super sensitive to this unconsciously and we're always adjusting. So if I'm um, a little bit higher status um, and I do something and I know there's kind of the seesaw. So if I, if I boost my own status and I'm acting like I'm in charge, it probably lowers the people I'm with a little bit. And, and, or if I do, so you can imagine an improv, a scene between, you know, the queen and a servant, and if the queen, there are certain behaviors that a queen might show uh, and demonstrate in a theatric kind of setting where it communicates clearly to you like, oh, that's the queen. She's very still. She's 
maybe taking up a lot of room. Her kind of personal space bubble mm-hmm. might be bigger. She might be less worried about bumping into the the um, servant or anybody else. Everybody will get out of her way. Whereas the, the servant, somebody who's, you know, at, and I'm describing extremes, who's at a lower status is trying to take up as little space as possible, is very apologetic, is asking permission to do things. You know, is this okay? Is that okay? Maybe is looking away, these sorts of things. And so you can, you've probably, we've all seen this on TV and movies and things. And once you become aware of some of these signs of, of the status, then in an interview, if I sense that the person I'm interviewing is maybe very uncomfortable. They've shown up at my office. They've come to Google. It's a little, there's some halo effect, right? Of mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm at Google and I'm talking to this Google guy. And so <laughs> I need to work to boost them up. Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. I couldn't do this without you. You know, I'm not an expert in this stuff. I'm so eager to learn from you um, and, and lower my own status a bit. So some of that is things that I'm saying, like I just described. And some of it can literally be I'm sitting next to somebody and I will, if we're in two desk chairs, I'll lower my chair so I'm lower than them so that I'm looking up at them and they're looking down at me. So there are a lot of these very subtle kinds of things that you can monitor, you try to establish in the beginning and then monitor as the conversation is going to try to make sure that they feel comfortable and that the, the balance of the seesaw is is working in the conversation. Yeah. So is it something that you're thinking about you know, consciously as you're in this situation? Or is it something that, you know, you've kind of practiced and developed this habit of lowering your status or raising your status depending on your situation? I think, I think it's a mix. I think that some of it is habit and things that I just do when I'm in my interviewing character. So when I see videos of myself doing interviews, my kids will laugh when they see it and they hear my voice because they're like, who is that guy? Because it looks, <laughs> it looks different from my normal, as I said, kind of grumpy, especially for them, parent mode. Um, and so I'm, I'm nodding a lot and I'm um, sitting in a way that I'm not taking up a ton of space. I'm not like spread out with my legs, you know, all over the place. And I'm like leaning forward and nodding. There's certain stances and things that are just kind of automatic. Mm-hmm. The times when it becomes when I'm more conscious is when I'm in some situation and I realize something's not working like this interview, like the person clearly is not comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so then in my head, what I'm trying to figure out is uh, kind of starting to troubleshoot that a bit. So what, what is going on? Is this person, is it a status thing? And what can I do to adjust that? So then I kind of, when it's not working, I would kind of in my brain, think back, uh, what tools do I have and how do I, like what's wrong and how do I, try to fix it. And then I'll try to fiddle with things. And mm-hmm. sometimes it means lowering myself. And sometimes it means boosting myself, right? It depends mm-hmm. on whether I'm talking to, it, it depends on how the person is reacting. And sometimes if I'm in, I'm talking to some oncologist and I'm in her office, I need to kind of boost myself up a certain amount. Um, Cause if she feels like oh, I have no idea, this person has no idea what he's talking about. And he's an idiot. Like she's not going to give me the time of day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. How many times do you think you touch your phone a day? Try 2,617. Seems like a lot, but dscout research shows that's just the median. Since everyone is already on their phone, dscout took qualitative research right to the people. Their pool of over 100,000 participants answer client questions on the largest digital diary platform around. You don't need to spend weeks setting up and recruiting for your research when you can use dscout to capture experience remotely. 
Learn how quickly you can launch your next study at dscout.com. How do you see your coworkers reacting to this? Because, I mean, it must be a little bit strange for them, like you just described with your children, where it's like they know you as, you know, one version of Michael, and then they (laughs) see you in these interviewing situations, and they're like, always, you know, he's this whole other character. Yeah, I think that, you know, our design team is pretty used to it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Stories I've heard, because, you know, I'm not, I can't, I'm not in the same room with them, obviously, when I'm doing the interview, they're observing it, you know, from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, some of the things I do, I apparently get some snickers, <laughs> um, <laughs> snickering from them. Um, and some things that they will, that I'm doing, they will sometimes explain to the company we're working with why I'm doing that. Because it will seem to somebody who doesn't understand what I'm trying to do um, and that I'm doing certain things on purpose. They're like, why is he doing that? Like, why is he t- telling them that this this prototype we spent all this time we've built or this product we've built it we spent all this effort why is he telling them like oh it's just a prototype it's just some idea like he's totally downplaying it like why is he mm-hmm. um where what i'm trying to do is kind of lower the status of the prototype so it's something that we can talk about and criticize and it's it's okay to you know not take it super seriously or feel like it's it's you know set in stone in some way Yeah, I would, it would be great to hear a little bit more about that. Because typically for me, when I think of body language, or, you know, what you were just describing with status, it's very much a, you know, a thing that I associate with a human being a person. Mm -hmm. But I, I can totally see the value in doing that with a prototype. So do you always do that with prototypes when you're bringing people in to, you know, like lower the status, make them feel more comfortable? Or is that, um, you know, situational? Well, like everything I do, I try to start with focusing on what's the key question that I'm trying to answer. And whatever the, the questions are, the goals of the research, I will, I will design everything I'm doing around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I could imagine there maybe is some situation where it's very important that, it, that you are presenting it as this like new amazing thing, because for some reason you want to see what is the out-of-box experience when somebody gets that? You, like if I were, I haven't done this, but you could imagine the, the magic of unboxing a, you know, a new Apple product, right? It's mm-hmm. supposed to seem like a jewel. Yeah. And so I, I could imagine if you were trying to test that or, you know, assess somebody's reaction to that, you wouldn't want to say, oh, you're, you know, there's this thing, it's, you know, it's a piece of crap, but whatever. <laughs> um, right. You, cause part of what you're, you would want to present it in as neutral ways you could. So it would, would be evaluated on its own mm-hmm. um, and not maybe not actually influence the, the perception of what is the status of this thing. I just yeah. want, here's this neutral thing you're encountering it. How do you perceive it? Mm-hmm. So, so I could imagine situations where you, you don't want to do that. Um, there are a lot of times where um, what I will do is describe things as prototypes that are actually finished products um, because I want people to feel like they can comment on it or not like parts of it or feel like some of it isn't perfect yet. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes I'll do that where maybe I'm, I do a lot of, um, a lot of times what I'll do is we will test things, um, that are existing products, sometimes competitive products that I, I kind of refer to as free prototypes. You can learn a lot from what your competitors products have done and they've already built it. Like, Oh, look at that. It's a working prototype. We can just use that in, in, a, in a test setting. And so we'll do that, you know, alongside something else we've built, but I might, might describe all of them as prototypes just to kind of level the playing field a little bit. So it's kind of the status of one prototype to another prototype. 
that, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So what are, you know, I think all of this is so interesting and valuable and, you know, just speaks to the fact that you really are an expert interviewer, that you're not just thinking about the words you're saying. There's, you know, there's so much there. There's the tone, there's the status, body language, all of these things. Are there any, you know, common mistakes? Because I'm sure you watch a lot of interviews that other people are doing as well. You were talking about kind of, you know, training these people who are associated with um, GVs. Um, GV's 300 companies in their portfolio. So I'm wondering what are some of maybe, you know, the common body language mistakes that you see people making that really kind of change the dynamic of that interview that they're uh, conducting? Um, it can be anything from the way a room is set up. So when I interview people, typically, I mean, again, it depends on what the setting is and what you're doing, but typically I'm trying to sit sort of next to them. Mm -hmm. So that we're both like peers looking at something, we're talking mm -hmm. about something, um, as opposed to you can imagine if I were sitting directly across the table from you. Um, <laughs> it turns into yeah. an interrogation. Right. So you, like as soon as I said that, you pictured that and you laughed, right? Because there's something about that that doesn't fit, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's exactly what I'm trying to avoid. So there are times that I see that I'm like, oh, no, and I'm laughing because they're like, oh, you're going to try to interview this person about something maybe that's very personal and you've set it up as an interrogation. Mm -hmm. So, so it can be things as, as much as, um, as much as the body language, it can be just the setup of the room. So where are your chairs set up? Who's facing whom? Um, what other kind of equipment do you have in the room? So sometimes somebody, you know, I like to keep everything as minimal as I can. So you don't have some giant camera in somebody's face and all this kind of stuff. Um, cause if it's small and kind of, not that it, not that it, you're, you're being secret about it, but it's, you don't want it to be in their face that they see some giant camera. So it's small and they kind of forget about it or it's over in the plant or whatever. You can show mm -hmm. it to them, but they forget. Yeah. You don't want those things to make them feel intimidating. So, so one aspect is again, that, that setup of the room. Um, another one is how many other people like, are in the room or are obviously watching. So um, when I do things, for example, that are remote or even when I do it in, in person, but the team is watching it remotely, very often what I'm using is, is go to meeting is kind of running in the background, mm -hmm. whether it's the person sitting next to me or not. Um, one of the things that I like about uh, go to meeting is that it allows me to hide the list of people who are other, attending or who are observing. So let's say I was doing this interview with you. You couldn't see that there are, you know, 12 people from the company also sitting in and watching. Yeah. It's not that I would need to be secret about it. Like I can be explicit that, you know, the team is interested and they want to watch this, but it's not helpful in the context of that interview for you to be reminded that there are a bunch of people watching you, mm -hmm. um, you know, as I'm trying to build that rapport. So that's the kind, so there are those kind of mechanical sorts of things that, that people forget about um, that can make a big difference. Um, uh, and then in terms of body language, uh, <laughs> It can be things, again, just like who's sitting in which chair? Like, did you give them the nice chair? Are you higher or lower? It can be how are you sitting in your chair? So I'm usually, as I described, I'm, I'll try to describe this since we're on air. <laughs> um, you know, that my, my knees are close together um, and I'm taking up a small amount of space. My knees are together. Maybe my elbows are on my legs. So if you can picture I'm kind of sm small and, and leaning in and listening very intently as opposed to leaning back with my arms spread out, my legs spread out, taking up a lot of room, which would be very high status. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm careful about eye contact. If you were looking at somebody, and if we were in person, I could do this to you, and it would make you feel very uncomfortable. I could just look at you really, <laughs> really intently and directly into your eyes, just like lock into a stare. And it's very hard to meet that gaze. Like you, if I were to do it, and you could try this with friends at home, you 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 just will look down. It's very hard to maintain that gaze. Like it's yeah. very it's a very aggressive, um, very direct kind of contact, mm-hmm. um, eye contact. So that kind of thing, it's not so good. Um, I think that uh, um, it is not being super polite and ingratiating when the person is there, you know, from the start. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's these kinds of things. Um, and, and tone of voice can be a big one. Um, and that one is hard to, I was working with somebody recently who it was hard for me to like explain to him, you know, the voice that you're using is just very, it just sounds aggressive. Hmm. Like, how do I, how do I help you adjust the tone of your voice so that it will sound a little more tentative when you're mm-hmm. asking questions and a little more like a little more higher, you know, a little higher toned. Um, yeah. So how did you, those how did you work that out with him? Like, how did you adjust his tone? Cause I think, I think that that is something that comes up for a lot of people. Like I notice when I'm working with my team, sometimes people will ask questions in this way where I know that the intensity is based on interest, but it comes across as aggressiveness. Yeah. Um, so what I try to do is um, try to model it and, and, and ask the question in a way that like, oh, what if you asked it like this? And, and try to, so they can try to hear it. And some people do or don't. Um, uh, the other thing to do is to try to help them he- listen to the, uh, the recording of themselves which nobody ever likes to do, but it can be very <laughs> um, helpful if you hear it. And you're like, oh, that's what it's, I didn't realize that's what I sound like. Um, one of the other things I ran into recently with somebody was what he explained was that, you know, it's been a long day of interviews and he's, he's fundamentally just tired. It's hard mm-hmm. to stay in character for several hours of interviews. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to kind of work up your, your endurance. So some of it might be just know yourself and don't do too many. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a row, you just like give yourself a, enough break. So sometimes if people are doing a lot of back-to-back interviews, which I usually try to avoid, I try to make sure that I have at least some break to kind of get out of character and rest or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're doing too many and you get tired, it's just hard to, it's a hard to maintain that kind of close focused attention um, on somebody. Yeah. And I mean, it's especially interesting when you put it in the context of being in this other character, because it's almost like you're, you know, in a play for five hours straight or something when you're doing all those interviews back to back to back. And I I love that call out, too, because I think in my mind, when I think about, you know, really talented interviews or, you know, really seasoned interview interviewers, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just them. Like, they're probably like that at a you know dinner party or something when mm-hmm. you're talking to them. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's just so natural for them to immediately put you at ease and like make you feel like you're the center of the universe and everything you're saying is so interesting. So I think it's, it's a funny or just like a a great call out, you know, that when your kids see you, you really are this other character. Yeah. And and many of those people probably are because they're fundamentally like better people than I am. So they're (laughs) more like, can, they're just actually naturally charming where I have to kind of (laughs) drink a lot of coffee and fake it, you know, like at an hour time and more like, I can't do it more than an hour. Um, but but yeah, like, I don't know what, what's Charlie Rose like at home. Like, I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And so it, it helps me just like prep myself when I walk into that room or I walk into that setting to it's like prepare myself mentally 
to, to for that engagement because it's a very particular kind of engagement with a person. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's it's so unusual, and I think it's unusual in this way that there's a very specific type of personality that goes into user research, right? That goes into UX research. And it's that personality that is really curious about people does like to have kind of those uh, intense engagements almost where you can just ask questions for, you know, an hour, listen for an hour. Um, and, you know, I, I'm so glad that we're talking about this, especially when you think about, you know, something like thin slicing, which is called out in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blank. And mm -hmm. it's that principle of how quickly we make these judgment calls mm -hmm. about other people, right? And so I think, you know, when you're talking about status and even the way that you're sitting or the way that you welcome someone in, there's all of these little, you know, these thin slices that the participant is making and creating and building up in their mind, right? And so I think once you've kind of gone through these steps that you've just laid out, that participant should leave feeling like, oh, I am the queen or I am the king because they've been, right. you know, made to feel that way this whole time. Right. And it starts from that first moment that you greet that person. I mean, it even starts, sometimes I think about it, it starts before you greet the person. It's what have those interactions been like even during the recruiting process or the confirmation emails you send, right? All of those are sending some kind of signal about you, about your company, about what this is going to be like. Like, mm -hmm. is it, do they come across as very friendly? Are they super formal from the start? Um, all of that. I, I think that's a, the, the idea of the thin slices is a great way to think about it. And you're, by the time they show up in person to me, like they've already had a bunch of slices and mm -hmm. I need to be, try to be conscious of that. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we're getting, I want to be conscientious of your time, but if there's any other soft skills that kind of, you know, come to the top of your mind when you think about your career, um, yeah, if there's any others that, you know, you mm -hmm. kind of would like to call yeah. out. Um, I, I guess I would, uh, I, I would plug again the idea of, of maybe taking some improv classes. Again, I'm no expert or performer at this stuff. As soon as it started getting serious in the class series I was in, that was when I got out. <laughs> People are like, oh, they want to be actors. Oh, I'm, gonna, I'm done here. Um, but there, improv is a pretty interesting thing. So in addition to some of the stuff we've already discussed, it's um, – it's this, and it's super fun. They're just like a lot of games and things, but a lot of it, what it's teaching you is this combination of things that are, have, for me, were really excellent preparation for interviewing. So the, the kinds of things that, that I, that it includes is, um, very quickly, you can imagine if you're have to be in a scene, you have to very quickly create a relationship of some sort with this other person you're with. You have to like figure that out with the other person. Um, it forces you to listen really hard and really carefully to what the other person is doing and what they're, you know, in, in improv language, I think it's it's like what their offers are to you. Mm -hmm. um, and you're, you know, it's this idea of yes and whatever they give you, you're like building on that and you're like creating something more out of it together rather than um, trying to cut them down or, or say, you know, no, that's not what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, so so this idea of like pulling things together and, and building something more together. Improv also when you're doing it, well, I think it's it's so clearly not about you, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a it's not a solo kind of performance. If only if one person is trying to stand out or do something, like it doesn't work. And so you're trying to make the other person successful. Um, and so in an interview setting, that works really well too, right? I'm trying to make this participant uh, make them feel like they're doing a good job. I mean, obviously, I'm trying to get the data I want, but most important is that they feel good about the whole experience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and make them make them do a good job. 
so there, there are a lot of those kinds of things that come out of it. And for me, it was also good just for, for public speaking stuff. It was helpful because I wasn't uh, so eager to be doing that. Uh, uh, so those are some, some things. So I'd encourage everybody to go take, you know, some really fun improv classes, um, if you can, other soft skills, the ability to ask different kinds of questions. I'm not sure how to explain this, but in different contexts, it's something that I've thought a bunch about, which is just the power of questions. There are certain kinds of questions that you would ask in an interview setting. And then there are other kinds of questions you might ask when working with stakeholders, um, kind of in that consultant mode to help understand, but also to help somebody think through a problem, mm -hmm. which is hard for me to articulate what the, the, the distinction is. But there, there's, uh, I guess what I'd say is, is uh, maybe a, another kind of a soft skill is, is pay attention to questions and the kinds of questions people ask in different contexts. So there are kinds of questions people ask as researchers. There are things that, you know, lawyers ask in different, you know, if you're being cross-examined, there's a certain style and kind of question people use for, for different goals, but it's pretty interesting to, to study those or the questions a doctor asks or questions your rabbi asks, right? It's like in a spiritual, like there, there are just all these different examples and contexts where people use questions. They're very powerful. And, and there's, there's something to me that's just very interesting about listening to those and listening for the effects that they have on people and, and helping to, you know, build up your library of questioning skills or techniques and wording. It sounds really like researching nerdy, but um, <laughs> it's something that, that I think is just kind of an interesting thing to I don't know, kind of pay attention to and listen for. Yeah. I'm, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think I so often see that the most important part of the project is just defining the questions. Yeah. I mean, the other kind of soft skills, obviously, are a lot of communication skills. Writing, I don't know if that counts as a soft skill or not, but, mm -hmm. you know, how to, how to articulate these insights that you have and be able to communicate them to people in a way that they get it and to, to understand their motivations and how does this fit in and um, how, can you, how can they understand and be able to explain to other people what are these things that I'm learning mm -hmm. um, and bringing back to them. Yeah. So those are also obviously key skills. Yeah. No, I, those are all great. I mean, they're really great call outs. And I, the last one, you know, being able to write and communicate it back when I, uh, you know, had a chance to talk to Jake Knapp, that was something that he called out was, yeah, Michael has this really incredible ability to go and talk to all of these people and then come back and, you know, kind of give us this digestible 15 minute version of all of this information that he's learned. Right. And so Again, I don't know if I would call that a soft skill or not, um, mm -hmm. but I think that's kind of what you're getting at maybe with, you know, writing and communicating effectively what you're finding. Because as a researcher, sometimes if you're lucky, um, hopefully not if you're lucky, uh, you <laughs> <laughs> like you get to bring people along with you, right? Like you actually get them to come and, and hear the interview. But if if you can't for some reason or for the rest of the team that maybe wasn't part of that, it becomes so important to effectively communicate those things that you've learned. Yeah. And a big piece of that, of being able to communicate that effectively is, is that you've, before you've done anything, before you've gone and planned the research, you've spent time understanding what does this team actually really need? Like fundamentally, what are their, their challenges? What are their goals? What are their big questions that they want out of that? And that helps me plan and think about how to like design some research exercise, whether it's interviews or like what style research I'm doing to deliver that. But then it, when I'm done, if I can go back and remember, oh, this is what this is what they were dealing with and what they want, then I can 
frame whatever I'm, I'm reporting back accordingly. And mm -hmm. so then it, it like fits with their whole, their frame for their business of what their concerns are and what they needed and what they wanted to know. And so then it helps me also distill things down to like what really was important or will be important to their business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it almost makes me want to talk to like a salesman or something, right? Where it's like their mm -hmm. whole job is just figuring that out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big piece of that kind of being a consultant is doing those initial interviews and understanding what matters to you here. Because often people will describe some question to you that's not really like I have to translate it into some research question with them. Mm -hmm. um, so like an example of that for me. And, and because I've done so many studies at this point, you know, with especially um, at GV, you know, I've been doing this for seven years. We have 300 portfolio companies. I do a lot of studies. Yeah. And so you start to see patterns in some of these things. So somebody will describe to me, for example, Flatiron Health said, you know, we are trying to develop a new product where we can make it uh, kind of more streamlined, faster, simpler, cheaper for people to identify cancer patients that are eligible for clinical trials. Like how, let's, can you help us figure out how to do that better? And so, you know, we spent a lot of time and I tried to get up to speed on like how does a oncology clinical trial work? And, and what I've figured out, like the pattern here is really what it is, is there's a process people are using to accrue, to, to recruit patients to clinical trial. And you, there's a process and you're, you're asking me, how do we understand what's the existing process and how do we improve that? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's then a, a research pattern. Okay, you have a, a workflow to understand. So now once I know that, then I can think, okay, well, the interview guide, like I'll flesh out a full-blown interview guide, but, but at its core, there's this template in my brain for what a, a workflow interview guide looks like. And at its core, it's what are you trying to do? Where does it start? And then what happens? And then what happens? And then what happens? <laughs> yeah. Right. And like at its core. And so then when I'm, you know, we did this crazy road trip and we were visiting all of these oncologists in four states and, you know, talked to a bazillion people. So, and I'm, and so again, a domain, like I don't know anything about clinical trials or oncology. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very overwhelming to be in those interviews because you can, unless you're controlling it, it could go a bazillion directions because if I don't know what I'm doing, it can go in the wrong way. But in my head, I have this North Star, which is, okay, what, what's the process? What's next? What's next? What's next? And then I can focus those interviews and get out of them what I need, which is I know that I'm going to need to create like a workflow diagram, essentially, with identifying the, the goals and the pain points and all this stuff. And so if I have that template or that key pattern identified in my head, it helps me plan and, and stay focused in these interviews and do everything in a fairly way. The analysis is a lot easier if I know that's what I need to create, all of those parts. Yeah, I like I like the analogy of that question being your North Star in any project because I can definitely relate to that. I find that people often come to you with more specific questions mm -hmm. than what they need to be or what they ultimately should be because it's like, okay, by defining the question that way, you've already narrowed it down to this, right. which may or may not be true. Right. So yeah, I think I think that's a great way to think about it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for oh, talking sure. on the phone. Again. Of course. Yeah. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad, you know, it's always nice to talk to somebody who's interested in this stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I love it, obviously. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group for a Q&A with Michael on Thursday, October 26th. 
If you aren't already a member of the Slack group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Levitt, the design mastermind behind this project. See you next time. Thank you.